You're listening to Rock Solid People, a podcast by Max King. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. So welcome to the podcast at Rock Solid People, a podcast where we talk to interesting individuals, amazing individuals in the disability space. And today, I'm very pleased to have with me Jess Harper, the CEO of the DIA. And I think that uh, acronyms here are the the go. We are in the uh, disability space. We are working for the NDIA. Uh, and uh, they love an acronym. I have to say it's one of my biggest challenges having come into the space five years ago to try and get my head around some of them. CEO of the DIA. Tell us, Jess, uh, about yourself and about the DIA. Thanks. And thanks for having me. It's uh, uh, an honor to be here and um, more than happy to. So uh, a little bit about myself and, and I guess my history as well as, uh, as well as the DIA. So DIA, Disability Intermediaries Australia, uh, it's the peak body for non-governmental intermediary supports within the disability sector. So when we talk about intermediaries, we talk plan management and support coordination, which is a, a growing area of, of disability support and, and something that I'm incredibly excited to, to be a part of. And uh, something that uh, that is um, going to continue to grow. Uh, we're seeing some fantastic numbers, and the the benefits for participants are just um, absolutely amazing. So, something that we're keen to to see continue. And you mentioned uh, your history. You've come into disability from a from a couple of other places, and I, I love that because so did I. I ran a recruitment business for a, lot, a while. I actually worked for Louis Vuitton. I had my own restaurant, so I've got a checkered background. Uh, you are heavily involved in motorsports, and uh, I looked at Gaggle. I didn't have a chance to really get to, too deep into that, but uh, you're obviously very, uh, very passionate about motorsports as well, and uh, and I, I think that that probably gives you the ability to come in and see disability from a different direction or a different angle. Would you agree? Completely. Very, very passionate about motorsport and uh, actively involved with Motorsport Australia outside of, uh, which is the governing body for, for motorsport in, in Australia, um, outside of my work with, with DIA. And completely, um, I'm very much of the view of having diverse diverse experience and, and background. It gives you a, a lot more understanding at a, a whole range of different complexities and flavours of life and is, is really able to, to see a little bit more into you know, what, what a normal life might actually be. I think I was all of about four weeks old at my first motor race event in the back of the transporter with mum and dad. So didn't really have much of a choice as to what sport I was going to, uh, going to grow up in. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic sport and one that, you know, what a lot of people don't, don't know is, is one of the few sports that is, is inclusive, you know, be it gender or age or, or disability, you're able to compete in the same competition at the same time on the same track or be an official, you know, waving a flag at the, at the same venue, which is absolutely fantastic and, and something that um, I've continued to, to push and strive for as much as possible in, in, my, um, in my time with Motorsport Australia and, and something I'm quite, uh, quite passionate about. But my background with disability really started, I think, at a very young age. Uh, I grew up in a family where, where disability was somewhat of a norm. In early years, being around um, family and, and close friends that had a range of different disabilities, from congenital disabilities to acquired disabilities, psychosocial disabilities, which really shaped my view, I think, at a young age uh, around acceptance and, and people with a disability are just part of the fabric of, of our society and you know they're normal like anyone else. And then was fortunate enough with mum and dad traveling, I spent time in, in Papua New Guinea during my early, uh, early high school years, which gave me a really 
different view on how the world is and the way that the world works. Um, seeing health and disability in a third world context you know, really set me up to understand how lucky we are back here in Australia and really you know, changed a, a lot about how I, how I view disability and how I view, view the world. But like you, before coming to professionally working in the disability space, had a number of roles. My background prior to, to disability was very much in business development, growing small businesses into large national or international businesses, which was um, something that was was fantastic to do, uh, a lot of hard work. But really, you know, for me, coming to, to disability came very much with a commercial mindset and, and looked at, you know, there's two sides to disability supports. The first is the is the demand side, which are you know participants under the NDIS, and you know finally having access to reasonable funds to get the supports that they need. But the other side of that coin is the supply side. That's you know the numbers and and depth of supply of of providers in the marketplace to to actually be able to support those participants. So I uh, figured I'd be able to use my commercial brain to to try and help the market develop. Uh, ultimately, ending up joining the NDIA and mm. spent a few years at the agency in a range of different roles, which was really, really exciting. So I started my time there with provider engagement in that role, you know, really was able to develop a range of products and, and outputs. The online provider toolkit, for those that remember that, was my baby yep. for a number of, <laughs> for a while, uh, as well as a range of educational products, including, you know, provider fraud and sharp practice and all of those fun things that come with a, a commercial market. But I think most of the people who, who knew me back at the time in the agency will remember me from working in the intermediaries team and leading that piece of uh, and space of work around policy development. And then right before leaving the agency in digital markets and partnership space, which has kind of now morphed into what is the digital partnership office and, and kind of the API um, application program interface space, which is a really burgeoning area of the market and something that, um, that I think is, is really exciting. Wow. I mean, there's so much to unpick from what you've just said there. <laughs> but, uh, but what I'd love to, what I'd love to hear, you know, obviously DIA, you're the representative body of support coordinators and plan managers. And obviously you've had that experience in the intermediaries team. So you've seen both sides. You've seen the commercial side from our side, you've seen from the agency side. And, and I feel like the agency has a tough, tough role in trying to, you know, ensure sustainability and, and a myriad of, of, of different conflicting opinions that they get on a daily basis. But the DIA, what's its, uh, what's its, I guess, its hopes for support coordination? We hear a lot of talk about it going under LACs and, and being taken away, and we're, we're in a declining market. And when I've been out searching for investment for my own business, we're told that you know, it's a risky channel to be in, it's, it's, it's dying, it's declining, whatever else. We, we, on the other hand, take the view that it's incredibly important. Where do you see it in the next three to five years? Look, you're spot on. Uh, I think you know, seeing things from both sides, seeing them from the uh, governmental side and, and also from the commercial side, DIA's members are, are broad and diverse. Uh, our membership base at the moment and our members are supporting nearly one in three NDIS participants nationally represents you know, high 60, 68% of funded support coordination providers, 75-odd um, percent of, of plan management providers, which is fantastic and something that's continuing to grow. But more importantly for us is it's a mix of you know, large national providers, medium-sized providers, small-sized providers, even sole traders, with a really good view across, across the nation. So we've got a, a number of regional and remote providers that operate in, in bespoke communities, which is, is fantastic to see as, as well, uh, which means that we get a really good view as to what not only um, the agency is kind of looking to, to take uh, some of these supports, but, but also where the market's looking to go. And, and I think the reality is that in a lot of cases, the market is well ahead of, of where the agency's view of 
of support coordination and, and plan management is. But you mentioned support coordination and kind of the LAC space and, you know, in a, in a post-independent assessment world, what that might look like. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of talk going around in that space at the moment and DIA is involved in a number of, uh, of engagements with the agency. Uh, we sit on a, a range of different reference groups, the industry reference group as, as well as the digital community of interest group and also a couple of groups with the commission as well, which gives us a really detailed insight of some of the developments that are going on within the agency. And agency rhetoric is is kind of a little bit tricky to navigate at the best of times. You know, I, I think that uh, having been in that space, you know, being in the provider engagement team, it's a it's a tough uh, tough space to be in and 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 to try and message and, and communicate with. So often the, the you know the real actual picture is kind of somewhere between what what a lot of people kind of hear, and the the LAC space is a really good example of that. So what our understanding is at the moment is very much that. Um, LACs with a focus of going back towards more plan implementation and support type work. Kind of what we saw in, in early 2017 before mm. LACs were really focused on, on kind of pre-planning and planning activities, which I think for a range of participants, that's only a good thing. We know that on average, about 60% of participants are supported by an LAC, 40-odd percent, I think it's actually about 45 at the moment, are supported by a support coordinator. And we don't really see that that shifting too much. But what we do see is essentially greater support for that 60%. So that's that, that side of the market that's already being supported by, a, by an LAC, which means that we probably do suspect the impact on the support coordination market to be more around that level one support connection space, which for a long time has really been a bit of a stopgap for the agency and only really funded in some very bespoke uh, circumstances primarily where there wasn't a, an LAC because that was still being rolled out in, in that particular state or territory or for a very bespoke circumstance need. And we suspect that that level would likely disappear in that kind of post-independent assessment world, mm-hmm. if not beforehand, something that the agency has been investigating for some time. And, and I think that that's concurrent with what I've heard as well. My concern with what you've just said there. I have first-hand knowledge of some LACs and the volumes of clients that they're supposed to to process and the KPIs that are against them. And it's excessive. It's, it's over 100 people per LAC and the agency is giving them more. So my concern is that whilst that is the outcome that we're all looking for, the support connection goes to the LAC team. The reality is that essentially people will be left behind because of the volumes that are expected and the under, underfunding. So I, I think that you're right, but I also have some, some, some severe concerns that that's going to be the outcome. Yeah, look, I think, um, so there's, there's kind of two parts to that. The, the first part is what happens to those that are currently, you know, have support connection funded with a, a support coordinator and where do they go? And our call on, on the agency and, and in our engagements with the agency have been very much that they should essentially be lifted up to, to what level two is and transitioned into, into that space, at least, uh, in a monitoring capacity, can look at it over, you know, the, the rest of their plan or a number of plans to, to see whether or not it's then, then worth. Or, or, or reasonable for them to possibly be supported um, longer term via an LAC. But that, that kind of conversation around what level and function an LAC is able to place and, and play is, a, is an ongoing conversation. It's something that has been, you know, the, the service delivery model under the NDIS now for a you know, number of years, nearly half a decade, which is a real challenge. We do see gaps in the market. We see participants who should be funded with a support coordinator not being funded with a support coordinator and some of the mm-hmm. dire consequences that come from that. And, you know, it's a, it's a, a real shame that, that more participants aren't able to access support coordination and 
and something that um, DIA does regularly uh, and consistently is to lobby government around how people are found reasonable and necessary for support coordination, what those numbers look like. Before DIA, it was pretty much a 40%, 60% split constantly since DIA's establishment in late 2018. We've seen that support coordination number continue to climb. I think we're at about 45% now. And and I think, you know, if we keep going the way that we're going in the not too distant future, it'll be a 50-50 split, yeah. which is is really fantastic to see. And ultimately, you know, the whole point of this support is to have better outcomes for participants. That's That's the name of the game here. And, you know, one of the things that is really important for support coordinators out there is there's kind of two elements to support coordination. One is building capacity, which is really important. But the second part is also maintaining capacity. And that's often the bit that's that's kind of forgotten about in the conversation. You know, without some of the supports that a, a support coordinator provides, the likelihood of, of uh, capacity deteriorating is, is quite high. Watch this space. I think it's an interesting one. And uh, I would concur with you. We think it's a fabulous, I mean, it's, it's been such a, an honor to, and privilege to be in the support coordination space and see the, the, uh, the benefits that it brings to the clients that we, that we serve. But obviously, the other hat that you wear, the plan management space, again, whilst it's difficult to differentiate plan managers from other plan managers, I think we all, lots of us do a very, very good job in this space. And I think we're one of them, but there's certainly plenty of others out there. But we're always, again, concerned about the future. And I think we read, and maybe it was a bit clickbaity from DSC around the, uh, the death of plan management with regards to payment at point of service. What's your take on, and you've obviously got some good, good uh, exposure to the technology side of, uh, of the NDIA and the businesses that will affect and the technology developments that will affect plan management. What's your take on, on plan management and, and, and the, the changes that are occurring? Um, look, I, I think, uh, again, like all things, you know, communication is often, often the, the tip of the spear when it comes to, to the agency communicating their long-term plans in, in technology. In DIA's view, where we sit today, and you're I think that NDIS just in general is the most ever-changing scheme uh, and an area of service delivery, uh, I think, in Australia. But you know, that aside, you know, where we're at today, you know, we, we see a market for, for plan management. We see an ongoing market for plan management. There's a few elements to how a plan manager works and what the role and function of a plan manager is. You know, we can see you know, changing and developing and growing over, over time. The conversation around the technology and you know payment at point of sale um, or, or CPOS as um, as the agency likes to call it is a is an interesting space uh, and a space that could um, ultimately be very empowering for a lot of participants. There's some challenges like all new technology that's that's implemented, how it's controlled, what the what the mitigations are around risk and fraud and a few other things. But conceptually, it's it's empowering. We know of a number of our members. Who are already investing in in payment at, at point of sale um, solutions, you know, through through plan management, which is incredibly exciting, and and ultimately facilitates a participant to pay their provider as fast as they physically can, which is is great. But there is a lot of complexities to achieve a, a nationally consistent payment at, at point of sale. It is incredibly con- complex. Uh, those that operate in the plan management sector know, you know, just how how challenging getting invoices can be at the best of times. Let alone, mm-hmm. you know, trying to weave technology over the top of that. I think the most important thing to understand is that even in a you know fully integrated payment platform, you know, kind of utopia space, there's still going to be a role for plan management. Plan managers have an important role to play in supporting participants to unpack budgetary considerations in the way that they spend. And it's that, that funds management element that is, is so critically important. Over the past four or five years, we've seen plan managers, and quite rightly so, focus 
a lot of their resources and time on uh, on the other side of the transactional elements of processing invoices, etc. And that's, I think, somewhere where technology can help plan managers to ultimately reduce some of that uh, some of that burden and, and some of that um, that workload to free up time for their staff to be focusing more on that on that uh, budget management and, and funds management mm-hmm. space. What is really encouraging to see over the past uh, four or five months is the agency's rhetoric shift around this improvement and and these technology developments. In the early days, we kind of heard rhetoric of you know we'll you know the agency will pay all providers, we'll have a one size fits all type model and type language. And what we're seeing more and more is a multi-channel approach coming from the agency where this, you know, uh, CPOS or or terminal type arrangement being one solution, e-invoicing being another solution, but there's still a range of transactions that we can see plan managers playing a very active role in that you just can't physically facilitate through some of these other technology arms. So long-term, do we see an overall reduction in the number of invoices coming into plan managers? Possibly, but these technology improvements take time. You know, I think it was six or seven years ago we were talking about you know digital marketplaces and and whatnot, and the agency you know leading that charge and doing all of that work and having the digital marketplace, and that's morphed over time into you know the agency providing some APIs so that the market can go off and do digital marketplaces and sales platforms, and and I think this is another example of where technology will able to be leveraged by plan managers to achieve uh, ultimately better service for, for participants. But like all things with the NDIS, you know, the minister could come out tomorrow and make an announcement and, and change, the, <laughs> change the game again. So, but at the moment, you know, we're, we're seeing that multi-platform approach um, to be encouraging, but a lot of work and a lot of time is yet to come before we, before we realize, uh, realize a solution. Well, it's interesting you say that there are multifaceted approaches to this. We, we'd be keen to explore some of those as well. I mean, anything that makes them the whole plan management space more efficient is is music to our ears because we feel like there is a value-add service that we can offer. But at the same time, a lot of our capacity is taken up by the very essence of plan management, the, the processing of thousands of invoices. And, you know, they, they, it's a, you know, the stream doesn't stop. It's a, it's a constant flow. So it's a constant, you know, and the, the team are challenged as we grow as an organization, the team constantly get challenged by the volume uh, and that's an ongoing process, but uh, payment solutions would be an interesting one. I, I'm just going to throw you a question that's not on the, on the sheet that I sent you, but I'm just going to ask about the API, if you don't mind. We're keen and we're exploring at the moment with care access, access to the API. But we've we found it anecdotally to be very difficult to get hold of the tech team, the you know the, the digital team. What, what's happening in that space? So I would have thought the API is something you flick a switch and turn on, and that's my technology level. I'm not I'm not not that technology technology based. But what what uh, what is the delay, and why is there, why is it seemingly so so difficult for organisations like us to get get involved with the, the API? Um, look, the the uh, digital partnership program through the agency is you know was really just coming to to its infancy when when I left the agency a couple of years ago now, and it's been growing growing since. But it's you know it's it's one improvement program of a number that the agency is trying to do, and and like all things in in uh, in government is you know there's there's only so much that so many people can do at, at any given point, but it's continuing to develop. You know the early stages of the APIs uh, coming coming out. We're encouraging, but you know we're starting to hit the limits of some of those APIs already within those providers who've been able to to develop their side. So APIs are really all they are in very layman's terms: a piece of technology that allows uh, plan managers such as yourselves 
to use your business system to contact the agency's business system without needing to go through the portal. That's basically what it is. It's a piece of automation that happens in the middle. But there's two sides to an API. There's the agency side and then there's the provider's side. And so the agency's gone and developed their side. But you know they're very, very early in its, in its development space. There's a couple of, of APIs that are now on to, to kind of version two and, and above, but you know there's limits on the numbers of or the amount of uh, call rates or, or times that your business system and the agency's business system can talk to each other within an hour, and that's still being developed. So I think the, the largest one at the moment is about 5,000 call rates an hour, which is, is still quite low if you think about the volumes of transactions that a plan manager might do. Yeah. And each transaction may have a number of calls because you might want to do one call to check if there's funds available another one to validate a service booking, another one to actually lodge the, the request. So there's a number of calls that could happen through those APIs. One of the things that the agency, and I have to give the agency a lot of credit for, is that they are taking their time in that development process with providers and with software developers that want to access the APIs to make sure that the provider side of that API meets all of the security requirements that happen. Yep. So because these transactions are ultimately happening outside of the portal, you know, those normal security arrangements that you would have of a staff member logging into the NDI portal and making sure that, you know, the service booking's there and all of those types of things, they are, are done in a, in a different way. So making sure that the API works from both the agency side but also the provider side is really important, which means that entry uh, and development space can take some time. You know, some of the earlier providers, it, it took, you know, 12 months or more. We're starting to see that, that time come back, which is great. But that's why I mentioned earlier, you know, we are a long way away from it being a really streamlined, quick process to, to be able to access uh, and develop those APIs. But it is game changing for plan management. Uh, APIs mm. will facilitate the vast volume of transactions that, that currently happen mm. and allow you know, further technology development, which is really exciting. But there is definitely a, a long way to go. We are, you know, step one of 3,000 is kind of the easiest way to describe it. And, you know, we're right. very much building <laughs> foundations at this point. Um, there's a yeah, long way right. to come. Awesome. Well, I'm excited. I, I mean, I have to say when we heard that it was finally being released, we were very excited. And as I say, we've been working with an organization, Care Access, to get access to, to their version of the API so that we can streamline that and get, get a bit of a jump on, on some of our competitors. We, we hear a lot as well about uh, plans being underspent. 30%, I think, or 31%, 69% of plans are spent. And obviously, we feel uh, uh, that's you know, a shame. People are being allocated funds, which is based around their, their care needs, their support needs. How do we increase this to 100% or, or, or 99 95%? Yeah, so it's an interesting conversation. Utilization is obviously one KPI that, um, that we can look at around outcomes for participants, but by no means is it the best KPI um, and, and it has a lot of holes in it. So one of the things that intermediaries do, both plan managers and support coordinators, plan managers to a lesser extent, but will do is how can participants get greater value from their plan? So we hear examples all the time where support coordinators are able to take a participant that's currently receiving a bespoke disability support. Uh, through a day program or something like that, and instead connect them to a community-based access support. So say a dance class or, or something like that in their community around the corner that's done at a, um, at a community centre. Wrap all of the supports around them, uh, like a support worker and things like that, to, to make sure that they're able to attend. But generally that costs less. So not only does it cost less, but it also has uh, substantially better outcomes for a participant. They're in community, greater access, uh, choice and control, all of those wonderful things that, that um, the scheme is supposed to bring about. 
But in the eyes of utilization, that's looked at as a negative thing um, because we're not spending all of a participant's plan. Yep. And ultimately, participants only have you know, so many hours in a day where they're able to get supports. So, and I'm not saying that that's the whole reason why plans are underspent, but that's a, it's a, an example of where utilization isn't the perfect picture. And you know, supports uh, and, and the agency looks at funding um, in a very blunt instrument approach to, to what supports might actually look like which is the proponent and the reason why we're such a big advocate for greater choice and control and funds flexibility for participants to mm. be able to use their funds funds better. But there's a, a range of reasons. You know, we, we know that there's some thin markets um, in, in particular areas where participants have funding, but they're not able to spend it. We know that there's some delays in approvals for, for certain types of, of funded supports, which ultimately means a plan looks somewhat underspent towards the end of the plan, even though it, it isn't. So there's a, a series of reasons and justifications why this might be and why it is. And I think it's really important for us as a sector to, to almost move beyond just the raw number of utilisation and try and understand why. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that plan managers have a, and support coordinators, but, but plan managers in particular, have a unique ability to do. You see how much funding in a participant's plan. You see where they're spending it. You get to see a, a range of things that can support a participant to make better choices and be able to use their funds in a, in, in a lot better way that delivers better outcomes. So it's something that, that uh, DIA is particularly keen on developing within the market and trying to have uh, intermediaries really kind of take that step back and say, okay, holistically, how are these you know, purchasing decisions working in with the participants' goals and what could be achieved? In saying that, it's really tough to do for $100 a month, uh, the current uh, price control for, for plan management services and, and mm. something that we're advocating on on almost a, a daily basis with the agency because, as we mentioned earlier, you know, margins within intermediary supports are incredibly low, mm. which, you know, is, is a real concern for us, particularly as we're trying to continue to grow the market and, and um, you know, increase choice and control for participants. So it's something that we continue to advocate pretty hard for. Yeah, and I have to say, when you mentioned that uh, in technology reducing the administrative, administrative burden of processing invoices, and that would, would free up time for us to to sort of you know pseudo support coordinate them, there, there, there's I would say there's, that's a it's a big stretch. Uh, if we had to sort of try and do that for all of our clients, we'd love to, but uh, yeah, as you say, on a hundred dollars a month, it's pretty tough. But uh, closing thoughts: scheme sustainability is something that uh, we are hearing a lot about. There was a report, I think, in the um, Newcastle Mercury today around the cost blowouts. I've seen $40 billion mentioned. I've seen $50 billion mentioned. Obviously, that's quite a lot bigger than the 22 originally. You know, it's to, figures like that are bigger than Medicare. That was the quote that I think was quite a sort of scary one from my perspective. You know, when people start seeing a, a scheme bigger than Medicare that, that benefits all Australians rather than uh, those people with a disability, I think there's some concerns around its sustainability just, I guess, would like your thoughts on that. Yeah, look, I think it's a couple of really important things for, for a lot of people to understand is obviously, you know, some of the early figures, that $22 billion, you know, we need to look at forward estimates and, and CPI growth and other things in the scheme. You know, it's not going to be $22 billion for, forever. And, you know, I think the figures for, for this financial year when the budget was released, you know, I think they're a little over a billion and a billion, I think it was 1.2, 1.5, something like that over where the Productivity Commission in 2017 suggested that, that the agency would be at this point. So not kind of huge, massive numbers, but then when you extrapolate that over the, over the next four years or so, you know, the numbers, you know, climb pretty substantially. And, and there's also an assumption about utilisation 
And, you know, if every participant used every dollar of committed funds, then yes, it'd be in a slightly different position. But I think that the challenge, you know, when we look at an insurance model and what the NDIS is trying to deliver is, you know, no one in Australia thinks that they can't go in and, you know, visit a public hospital because they have need because someone else visited a public hospital two days earlier. And ergo, there's now this concern about, uh, about treatment and availability options, you know. You know, if you need a hip replaced, you need a hip replaced and, and you can have a hip replaced regardless of how many other people might have had a cancer treatment in that year. You know, the NDIS needs to be the same. And ultimately, it's insurance for people in Australia who you know, may acquire or be born with a disability to have the supports and services that they need. And it's, it's that, that simple. And from a, a sustainability perspective, the scheme is only ever going to be as sustainable as is tolerable in a, in a political budget context. You know, Money is something that that government always looks at, and and you know it, it can't be an indefinite and uncontrolled scheme cost. But you know I think there's a range of areas within the scheme that currently exist where you know if if uh, money needs to be trimmed, it could be trimmed from that shouldn't impact on a participant's ability to buy service. You know some of the costs that are um, and some of the the developments that are being looked at you know are expensive, and there's there's ways of of delaying or reducing some of that spend. But look, I, I think sustainability wise, it's as I mentioned earlier, you know the the reality or the truth is somewhere halfway between messaging and um, and and I think what what we all kind of think. You know, there's there's definitely I think some legitimate concern, but equally, you know, it's it's not as big as I think it's probably being played up to from a political context at the moment, and it's it's probably somewhere in that in that middle ground. But you know, time time will tell. Di and uh, and myself was fortunate enough to to meet with the minister a week or so ago for our first meeting, and and we're able to to you know really convey what what you know the effects of some of the planned improvements or, or developments that the agency is trying to do, what some of that uh, was going to to do to to the intermediary sector, and you know we had a, a reasonable conversation with the minister, and we're hopeful that we'll be able to to continue those conversations with her and. And ultimately, you know, drive a, a scheme that is best fit for p- the participants that it's here to serve. Mm. Well, look, I think that's a nice wrap there, Jess. I, I, I'm excited uh, that you and the DIA are, are fighting in our corner. I, I think that uh, we're we're a better uh, intermediary space for 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 you and the uh, the association. So, thank you very much for all your hard work. Thank you, your team as well. I'm sure there's a big team behind you. We always appreciate the uh, the submissions. For being done being done on our behalf because when I last downloaded I think it was an 84 or 100 page document and I was pretty impressed and uh, a little bit overwhelmed by the response so thank you for taking that uh, heavy lifting away from us because it's uh, certainly needed but uh, and awesome to have chatted about support coordination and plan management as I said we we love being in the space we think it's a, an amazing place to, to be in to support individuals and looking forward to yeah the next few years and continuing to do what we do and please continue to do what you do best thank you very much uh it's our it's our pleasure to, to do it on behalf of the sector we do it only because we're supported by the sector um our membership is is of the sector so uh, everyone that signs up to be a member is ultimately helping and funding us to to do this work so no it's it's our complete pleasure to to represent the sector and and engage on your behalf and it's been a pleasure to speak with you as well Thank you very much. Thanks, Jess. Cheers, Max. Bye-bye. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Rock Solid People. For more interviews, stay tuned.